Hey folks, thanks for tuning in again, or for the first time, to my silly little podcast, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I ferret through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and take a lighthearted, positive, fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless, set theme every episode, and I sometimes highlight some rock and roll bed shits just for some fun. It's really just an attempt to archive some stories, old YouTube interviews, and some great songs for like-minded rock music fans. Choosing from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It's not a countdown, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of laid-back, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to support a musician by buying some music or some merch, or listen to an old favourite album, and check out all this amazing shit that I adore, which has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people do like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think if I have missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at thisisnotarealemailaddress at gofeckyegoodself.cockgoblin.com. That's cock spelt with two Ks, and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast or via the website a rock and roll rabbit hole.com that's com spelt with a c the website also has spotify playlist of all of the songs used in each episode past episodes as well and some other golden magic and i also have some small playlists of the great lesser known artists that i like to highlight at the end of each episode on the victims tab of the website Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast if you are digging it. That's super helpful and genuinely appreciated. Thanks again. Apologies in advance, and here goes. I'm still a little bit flat over Charlie Watts' death a few weeks ago, and I've been listening to a different Stones record every night, but I've kind of got stuck on Some Girls, which I absolutely love. So I thought I'd quickly take a look at some other musical releases in 1978 and get a feel for the musical climate, a climate that may have made the Stones release their disco-tinged last number one single, which is Miss You. I have no idea where this is going to lead or whether any of it's going to be interesting, but here goes with my dig on the year 1978. As mentioned in the Charlie Watts episode a few weeks ago, Some Girls is the only Stones album ever to be nominated for a Grammy, and that was in 1979. Let's start by having a look at the nominees, which were all in the charts in 1978. And here's your host, Neil Diamond. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure for me to be here tonight and to present the award for the album of the year. The nominees are... Barry Manilow, Even Now. Produced by Barry Manilow and Ron Dante. The original soundtrack from Greece. Jackson Brown, Running on Empty. 
Jackson Brown producer. Picture soundtrack from Saturday Night Fever. The artists are the Bee Gees, David Shire, Yvonne Elliman, Tavares, Pool and the Gang, Casey and the Sunshine Band, MFSB, Tramps, Walter Murphy, and Ralph McDonald. Fitzgerald, our band Dennis Bryan, Alan Kendall, Blue Weaver, for bringing it home. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 1978 was definitely the year of the Gibb brothers. Looking at the US Billboard end of year charts for 1978, Andy Gibb had two songs, neither of which I've heard. Shadow Dancing was the number one single that year, written by all four Gibb brothers. Andy Gibb also had a song that was the eighth biggest selling song in the US that year, and it was called Love Is Thicker Than Water, which was co-written with Barry Gibb. And the Bee Gees themselves had three songs in that top ten. Night Fever was number two, Staying Alive was number four, and How Deep Is Your Love was the sixth biggest selling song that year. Andy Gibb also had a song called An Everlasting Love at number 45 that year, which was written by Barry. And the Bee Gees also wrote If I Can't Have You, covered by Yvonne Alleyman as the number 19 selling song in the US that year. So from number 10 to number one, here's the top 10 selling songs in Australia from 1978. The rivers of Babylon, there we 
10 selling albums in Australia were number 10, The Kick Inside by Kate Bush, number nine, Some Girls by The Stones, number eight, City to City by Jerry Rafferty, number seven, Rumours, Fleetwood Mac, number six, The War of the Worlds soundtrack, number five, The Stranger by Billy Joel, number four, Simple Dreams, Linda Ronstadt, Number three was the Grease soundtrack. Number two, Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf. And number one was the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And from number 10 to number one, here's the biggest selling songs in the UK from 1978. Coming from from Smurfland, Are you talking just like us? No, the Smurf is much less fuss. You once, twice, three times a lady. Oh, tell me more, Top 10 UK albums were number 10, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, 20 Golden Greats. Number 9, Images by Don Williams. Number 8, War of the World soundtrack. Number 7, Out of the Blue by ELO. Number 6, Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. Number 5, another album called 20 Golden Greats, Nat King Cole. Number 4, Night Flight to Venus, Boney M. Number 3, The Album by ABBA. Number 2, The Grease soundtrack. Number 1 was the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And lastly, from 10 to 1, the biggest selling records in America for 78 were at number 10, Jackson Brown Running On Empty, number 9, Slow Hand, Eric Clapton, number 8, Simple Dreams, Linda Ronstadt, number 7, The Grand Illusion by Styx, number 6, Feel So Good, Chuck Mangione, number 5, Arja by Steely Dan, number 4, The Stranger, Billy Joel, number 3, Rumours, Fleetwood Mac, number 2, The Grease Soundtrack, and number 1, Saturday Night Fever. So let's go back to the US Billboard end of year charts for 78 for some other songs. So we've mentioned Miss You by the Stones that came in at number 16. And the 17th biggest selling song that year is a song that won two Grammys for Record of the Year and Song of the Year. Here's Billy Joel talking about the song. Just the way you are. Did you write that on the Fender Rhodes that you hear or was that originally something else and then it turned into... I dreamt the song, I dreamt the melody, not the words. I had a dream and, and then I remember waking up in the middle of the night going, this is a great idea for a song, and going back to sleep, and then waking up and not remembering what I dreamt and knowing, what was that? I had a really good idea, I had a really good idea, and then I forgot. And a couple of weeks later, I'm in a business meeting, talking to accountants or lawyers, it's some kind of boring stuff, and the the dream reoccurs to me right at that moment because I, my mind drifted off. I'm hearing numbers and legal jargon and I just drifted up and boom, it came right back into my head and I said, I have to go. I have to go right now. 
I think I have an idea for songs. So the accountants and lawyers went, well, go, go, go. Yeah, 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 go. And I, I ran home and I started playing the theme that had reoccurred. And on my way home, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to remember this? Da, 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 da. Don't be crazy. Don't be stupid. And they're called bailout lyrics. But you have to use them to remember the notes, to remember the theme you sang that you came up with. So I got home and I uh, ended up writing it all in one sitting pretty much about, uh, it took me maybe about, I don't know, two or three hours to write the lyrics. I probably reshaped them a little bit in the studio. But um, yeah, I remember writing that very well. It was a dream that reoccurred, which happens a lot with me. And did, was there anything that, in particular that Phil brought to that song, or was that just sort of...? We had some difficulty finding what the drum pattern should be. Uh, I remember Liberty started playing it as a cha-cha, and we hated that. One, two, cha-cha-cha. To try every one, two, cha-cha-cha. We just, ugh, we hate that. I remember Liberty throwing his sticks, sticks. I don't want to be a cocktail lounge drummer. And we said, we don't want you to either. And Phil came up with that pattern that goes boom, that, boom, that, boom, bop. Sort of a backwards Latin samba thing, which we wouldn't even have considered playing unless Phil came up with it. And uh, so that's, that was that part of it. And then the vocals, there's this atmospheric thing going on. Ah, all these voices singing, ah which is very similar to 10CC's record. You're not in love. It textures the background. I didn't want to use an organ as a sustenuto, as a sustain. I didn't want violins doing it. I didn't want a horn section doing it. So what's going to give us that fill in the back? Well, I came up with this idea, because now you can do it with a synthesizer. You can just hit voice button and then play voices singing and hold it as long as you want. We, we didn't have that technology in 77. I actually had to sing each note and hold it and then they'd make a tape loop then I'd sing the next new thing, make a note, make a tape loop of that. And that's, and then we had it on the board. This is kind of difficult to understand how this is all working. But Phil had the note of me, me singing the note. And would bring it in and bring it back out. Um, as if he was playing the organ. And that was a relatively new technique. Um, I don't know how 10CC did it, but that's how we did it. But that's all you doing all those? Parts? That was all me doing all those voices. And the other thing with that song was having, bringing Phil Woods in to do the sax solo. Now, our sax player at the time was a guy named Richie Cannata, and he had been used to playing all the sax parts. But Phil said, look, I've got a specific guy, he was a protege of um, Charlie Parker. Now, how do, you, how do you not go along with, with that? Go, wow. And Richie was disappointed. But I, I was dying to hear, you know, Charlie Parker's protege, Phil Woods. I mean, this guy's just a legend. And he came in and just blew the hell out of the thing. And like I said, played six solos. I didn't know which one to pick, but Phil did. Phil knew that he liked sections of each one and, and, did, and edited them all together into one solo. So there was a lot going on with that recording. That was novel to us, you know, that was new for us, that got created in the studio at that particular moment. And then at the end of things, we were sitting around, you know, we got a bunch of guys here. There was no girl in the band, it was just all guys. And we're listening back going, I don't know, do you like it? I don't know, it's a chick song. You know, none of us were all that hot to put it on the album. And then 
and we were listening back again, and Phoebe Snow came by with Linda Ronstadt, and they heard the song, and they went, we love that song. We said, yeah, we don't like it. We're not sure we're going to put it on the album. And they you said, you're crazy. You've got to put that song on the album. I said, yeah, all right. These girls like the song. I guess we should put it on the album. So we kept it on, thanks to them. So did it surprise you when that sort of became the standout Grammy-winning track off of the record? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it wasn't even a rock and roll record. It was, it was like a standard kind of song, or um, uh, with a little bit of R and B in it. It reminded me of an old Stevie Wonder recording, in a way, uh, a song that Stevie Wonder written, uh, who I loved. I love Stevie Wonder, but uh, yeah, it surprised the hell out of me. I didn't think it was going to win anything. Queen's double-sided We Are The Champions and We Will Rock You. And here's Brian May talking about We Will Rock You. Um, so what what inspired that song? I mean, it's been played at so many sports stadiums mm. over the decades. What, what were you thinking about when you wrote, wrote it? Were you thinking of it as a sports anthem? No, not really. I was thinking of it more of a, a, as a rock anthem, I suppose, it, and a means of uniting an audience or um, taking advantage, you know, enjoying the fact that an audience is united. And I didn't realize that it would transfer to, to sports games. So this is quite a, an amazing thing. It's, it's, it's wonderful for me to... Um, to see what We Will Rock You has done. You know, We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions, of course, have um, kind of transcended the normal um, framework of where music is, is listened to and appreciated. They've become part of public life, which I feel wonderful about. It, it's fantastic to me if I go to a, uh, you know, a football game or a soccer game or um, basketball or whatever, or any place all around the world, and there it is, and I think, my God, most people don't even realize that I wrote it. Most people don't realize that it was written. It sort of become <laughs> That's right. One of, one of those things that people think was always there. You know, it sort of goes back into prehistory. So in a way, that's, that's the best compliment you could have for well, a song. Well, I think, you know, that's, if people don't even realize it was written, it's in part because it almost sounds like uh, an old-school cheerleader cheer, mm. you know, yeah, because, of that, because of, of that stomp, of stomp, clap thing. Mm -hmm. And because it's a yeah. chant. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, the stomp, stomp, clap thing, yeah, people think it was always there, but actually it wasn't. And I, I don't know how it got into my head. All I can tell you is we played a gig um, sort of middle of our career. 
in a place called Bingley Hall near Birmingham. Now, Birmingham is the sort of home of heavy metal, as you probably know. You know, Sabbath and Slade and people come from there. Um, and it was a great night. People just, the, the, the audience were just responding hugely. And they were singing along with everything we did. Now, in the beginning, we didn't relate to that. We were the kind of band who liked to be listened to and taken seriously and all that stuff. You know, so people singing along wasn't part of our agenda. Having having said that and then having experienced this wave of participation of the audience, in particularly in that gig in Birmingham, we almost to a man sort of reassessed our situation. I remember talking to Freddie about it and saying, look, you know, obviously we can no longer fight this. This has to become something which is part of our show and we have to embrace it and the fact that people want to participate and really everything becomes a two-way process now. And we sort of looked at each other and went, hmm, how interesting. (laughs) And he went away that night and to the best of my knowledge wrote We Are The Champions with that in mind. I went away and woke up the next morning with this... In my mind, somehow, because I was thinking to myself, what what could you give an audience that they could do while they're standing there? And they're all crushed together. They can stamp and they can clap and they can sing some kind of chant. So for some reason, it just came straight into my head that we will rock you. So um, how did you record the stomp, stomp, clap so it would sound grand and reverberating as opposed to um, three people, four four people Mm -hmm. stomping their feet and clapping? Well, I'm a physicist, you see. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this idea if we did it enough times and we didn't use any reverb or anything, um, that I could build a sound which would work. We were very lucky. We were working in an old disused church in North London and it already had a nice sound, not an echoey sound, but a nice big uh, crisp sound to it. And there were some old boards lying around. I don't know what they were, but they just seemed ideal to stamp on. So we kind of piled them up and started stamping. And they sounded great anyway. Um, but being a physicist, I thought, well, supposing there were a thousand people doing this, what would be happening? And I thought, well, you would be hearing them them stamping. You would also be hearing a little bit of a... Um, uh, an, an effect which is due to the, the distance that they are from you. So I, I put lots of individual uh, repeats on them, not an echo, but a, re- a single repeat, and at varying distances. And the distances were all prime numbers. Now, much later on, people designed a, a machine to do this, and it's, I think it was called Prime Time or something. But that's what we did. As we recorded each track, we put a, a delay of a certain length on it, and none of the delays were sort of harmonically related. So what you get is there's no echo on it whatsoever, but the, the claps sound as though they're, they're spread around the stereo, but they're also kind of spread as regards distance from you. So you just feel like you're in the middle of a large number of people stamping on boards and clapping. That's amazing. And also singing. Now, here's another really interesting thing to me about We Will Rock You. It's, it's the most famous song that you've written. It's a largely a cappella song. You come in for your guitar solo at the very end. So until like the very, very end, like you're not even <laughs> playing on it. And it, it's just kind of amazing that you as the guitarist would write a song that you're barely featured on. Well, I'm featured stamping and clapping. Well, see, yes. Know? And I'm featured And you're singing, very so. good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Well, we're all featured. Yeah, well, you see, songs aren't about guitars to me. Songs are about... Truthfully, a song is about a singer, in my opinion. And if the singer gets the idea across, then you're you're almost home and dry. You know, you can make the most beautiful piece of production. And I love production. You know, pr- production's a big, 
big part of my life. But I'm always aware that if you don't have the right singer and he doesn't have the right feeling, you're wasting your time. So a song is a song to me, and it doesn't matter what's on it. It could be a piano accordion on it. You know, if it's the right song and the right singer and you feel passion, um, that's what it's about. The guitar solo, yeah, I didn't want it to be standard. I didn't want it to be like, oh, here's a guitar solo, and then we sing another verse. I wanted it to be something stark and different. Um, so it was very deliberate that I left the guitar solo to the end. Um, just to, because that was a final statement and a different statement, taking it off in a completely different direction. It changes key into that piece too, you know, so it's, it's, it's a whole different kind of ship. It was not a standard pop song. Buddy, you're an old man, poor man, pleading with your eyes, gonna make you zombie someday. You got mud on your face, big disgrace. Somebody better put your bag into your place. Stewart's love song comparing his big bosom Dutch lady with his two favourite soccer teams came in at number 37, You're In My Heart. You're an essay in glamour, please pardon the grammar, but you're every schoolboy's dream. You're Celtic, United, but David, I've decided you're the best team I've ever seen. And there have been Many times I thought to leave But I bite my lip and turn around Cause you're the warmest thing I've ever found You're in my heart, you're in my soul You'd be my breath should I grow You are my lover, you're my best friend You're in my soul Linda Ronstadt had two cover versions of two of my favourite 50s guys. At number 61, she was doing Roy Orbison's Blue Bayou, and at number 90, Buddy Holly's It's So Easy. And a few Aussie songs that aren't Barry Gibb related from the list. At number 46 was John Paul Young's Lovers in the Air, which was actually written by Harry Vander and George Young, which is Angus and Malcolm's brother. Check out the ACDC episode for a bit of info on those guys. And also another song we've featured in a couple of episodes at number 35, Hopelessly Devoted to You. The 65th biggest selling song in 78 in America was a song that was actually written by one of my good buddies' father-in-law and it went on to be the most played Australian song on US radio ever and a song that John Lennon stated was one of his favourites. The song only made it to number 35 in Australia, number 3 in the US and number 17 in New Zealand but it ended up doing okay for the Little River Band. Friday night it was late, I was walking you home We got down to the gate and I was dreaming of the night Would it turn out right?
by Jackson Brown. At number 99 was a song from an album I bought in Japan for a couple of bucks a few years ago when travelling was permitted and I loved it. And this song's got great vocals and great energetic drum track. Hollywood Nights by Bob Seger. She took his hand and she led him along that golden beach They watched the waves tumble over the sand They drove for miles and miles on those twisting, turning roads. Higher and higher and higher they climbed. In those Hollywood nights, in those Hollywood hills, she was looking so right. In her diamonds and frills, all those big city nights. Here's the number one US singles from January to July 1978. So in week one, it was How Deep Is Your Love? Week two, three and four was this song. Week five, six, seven, and eight was staying alive. Week nine and ten was Love is Thicker Than Water by Andy Gibb. Week 11 to 18 was Night Fever. Week 19 was If I Can't Have You, which is written by the Bee Gees. Week 20 and 21, With a Little Luck from Wings. Twenty-two was Johnny Mathis. Too much, too little, too late. Too much, too little, too late. 
Week 23, the one that I want from Greece. Week 24 to 30 was Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb. Week 31 was Miss You by the Stones. first 30 weeks of 1978, only six weeks were non-BG-related number ones. So the Stones pull us back to the rock, and here's some rock happenings from 1978. So on May 25th, 1978, was the last appearance of Keith Moon with The Who, when they shot some pickup footage for their doco, The Kids Are Alright. His last gig was actually in October 21st, 76, and he passed away in 1978 on the 7th of September. Another rock death in 78 was the story of Chicago guitarist Terry Kath, who shot himself in either a suicide or a game of Russian roulette. And you can check out episode 13 and 14, Dead by 40, for Terry Kath's story and also Keith Moon's story. A bunch of bands started in 1978, so Australian Crawl, The Descendants, Anvil, Dead Kennedys, Whitesnake, Duran Duran, The Pretenders, and this one's surprising to me, Pulp started in 1978, and a band I have featured a bunch but never mentioned that started in 1978 is the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir. There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs bands that started in 1978, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, UB40, Venom, London. London is a band that I talked about in previous episode. It was an early band that featured Nikki Six, Slash, Stephen Adler, Izzy, Blackie Lawless and some others. A couple of super influential bands finished in 1978, The Sex Pistols and Television, and an Irish band called The Hype changed their name to U2. And of course, the charts don't always indicate good music, so here's some great debut singles released in 1978. Mm. 
was actually a live TV version of Rock Lobster and it was from the B-52's fifth ever gig. And this debut single had some high singing and, and high charting at number five in the US. self-titled debut album and their first single, Just What I Needed, were both released in 1978. The album made it to number 18 in the US and has since gone on to sell 6 million copies. My next guest has made one of the best American rock debuts of the year. Live audiences love them and the critics are already comparing their work to Queen and David Bowie. From the back bay of Boston, here are the cars. New 
Zealand band Dragon had their first number one Australian single in 1978. And the song was another song they probably wouldn't get away with these days, Are You Old Enough? A South Australian music magazine, Roadrunner, said the song was... Their best yet. This band continues to make superb sounding singles. This will be a number one for sure. And continue to be the most sexy band in the country. This one, about fucking young women and going to jail for it, is probably their most offensive yet. also released their debut single in 1978 and it's a song they probably wouldn't get away with these days as it's titled Killing an Arab. Another English debut from 1978, which was a number one song in Australia and the UK, was the first UK number one fully written by a female artist. Kate Bush was only 18 when she wrote Wuthering Heights. A strange and lovely and fascinating song, Kate. What was it about Kathy and about Wuthering Heights that caught you, that made you write it? Well, I saw a series on the television about ten years ago, and it was on very late at night, and I caught literally the last five minutes of the series where she was at the window trying to get in, and um, it just really struck me. It was so strong, and uh, for years it's just been going around in my head, like the basic story and, and that visual image of her at the window, and I thought it was just perfect material for a song. It's just so passionate and full of impact it's great and i read the book you read the book, you read the book later <laughs> yeah i read the book before i wrote the song because i needed to get the mood properly is the pitch of your voice there your natural comfortable singing pitch or do you deliberately heighten it to get the the effect of kathy this ghost-like effect yes i do i do deliberately heighten it just because it's what the song calls for um but it, it's comfortable as well do you have to, do you, does it strain your voice to do it? I mean, do you take lessons to get, get it technically right so that you're not hurting your vocal cords? No, I don't actually take lessons to do that, but I do have a teacher um, who I haven't seen for months, in fact, but he keeps an eye on my voice to make sure I'm not pulling it around too much. When did you start writing songs? I must have been 11 or 12. I mean, but that was a, a very unprofessional sort of... Uh, situation. Was it in secret or, or for family and friends to hear? Oh, always in secret. I could never do it in front of people. I've never been able to. And if I do, I automatically feel that 
the fact that it's a performance because as soon as you have someone in the room with you I feel you should give them the best you should perform well when did the music man come to hear about you and how uh, that was quite a gradual process um, when I was about 14 there was a friend of my brother's called Ricky Hopper who um, was in the business and he knew a lot of people and he acted as a, a friend to try and get the tapes across to people um, and after some trying there was no response and he knew Dave Gilmore from the Pink Floyd and um, Dave came along to hear me because at that time he was scouting for struggling artists and he'd already helped a band called Unicorn and uh, he came along and heard me and he put up the money for me to make a proper demo with arrangements and selected songs and we took it to the company. And you were what age then? About 16? Yes. was a weird but incredible song but I never really liked her voice but it could be 43 times worse I guess Great albums from 1978. As we said at the start, the Rolling Stones, Some Girls, the Ramones released their fourth album, Road to Ruin. Devo's debut album, Are We Not Men, We Are Devo, was released in 78. The Clash's second album, Give Him Enough Rope, which went to number two in the UK. And for Scott Hughes, Judas Priest released two albums in 78, Killing Machine and Stained Class. Dire Straits' great debut album came out in 78, went to number two in New Zealand, number two in the US, and number five in the UK. And apart from Sultan's A Swing, the album also has a song that I love, which was track one and the B-side to Sultan's. And here's a demo for Down to the Waterline. Kisses in the dark and the dark. 
1978, Dire Straits toured, opening for Talking Heads, who also released their second album in 1978. And the album was called More Songs About Buildings and Food, and it went to number 29 in the US and number 21 in the UK. And featured their first top 30 US single, Al Green's Take Me to the River. released his fourth album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which has gone on to sell four million copies. And a song Bruce Springsteen wrote with Patti Smith was also released in 1978. Minute by the Doobie Brothers was released in December 1978 and it featured the title track and also What a Fool Believes. Minute by Minute went on to win three Grammys in 1980 as most of its chart action was in 1979. Prince released his debut album called For You in 1978 and it only reached number 168 in the US. Prince played all of the instruments on the album and it took five months for him to track it. Hemispheres by Rush was released in 78. It's their sixth album and it still hasn't been heard by a single female on the planet. KISS released the four solo albums on the 18th of September 1978. Here's their chart numbers in America. Ace 26, Gene 22, Peter 43 and Paul 40. Queen released their seventh album Jazz and it went to number two in the UK and number six in America. And here's Brian May talking about the great fun Don't Stop Me Now. I thought it was a lot of fun, but yes, I did have an undercurrent feeling of, oh, aren't we talking about danger here? Because we were worried about Freddie at this point. And um, I think that feeling lingers, but it's become, I'd say, almost the most successful Queen track as, as regards what people play in their car or um, or play at their weddings or whatever. You know, it's, it's become a massive, massive track. It's a sort of anthem to, to people who, who want to just 
be hedonistic. And um, yeah, I, I have to say, kind of a stroke of genius from Freddie. Tonight I'm gonna have myself a real good time. I feel alive. Ninth album comes a time, and the title tracks a cracker. Comes a time when you're drifting. Comes a time when you settle down. Comes a light feelings lifting. Lift that baby right up off the ground. Bob Marley's 10th album, Kaya, was released in 78 and it had his best known song on it.
also released a live record called Babylon by Bus. Hi Australia, I'm Bob Marley and you're watching the 200 Countdown. <laughs> Bob Marley, welcome to Australia and to Countdown. A lot of people sort of describe your music as reggae, but to me it seems sort of more as if it's sort of like just a, uh, a lot of people getting together and having a lot of fun putting music together and, and enjoying it. How do you describe your music? We describe our music as a road to consciousness, you know? Yeah. So, um, regardless which label people might call it, we're satisfied with any label, mm. but we call it music still, you know? Mm. Revolutionary music. Revolutionary in what respect? Revolutionary of the mind, you know, bring the reality of what has been hidden yeah. from the wise and the prudent to the babe and the suckling. Well, for instance, the film clip that we've got, or we had of Is This Love, uh, everyone in that film clip seemed to be sort of so happy and uh, when you were making it. Uh, yeah, a lot of children. Yeah, with the children yeah. and everyone. Everyone well, was smiling. And no need for the children to be sad, you know. Dancing. They're innocent. Yeah. Right? All children innocent. So them should be happy. Well, um, I tell you what, a lot of people in Australia with it already, you've got a gold album for Live at the Lyceum, another one for Exodus, and your current album, the one that's just been released, that's already achieved gold in this country, yeah. for Babylon by Bus. Oh, nice. And <laughs> Kaya album was so successful and one of the best albums for what we figured for 1978, and I'm sure everyone in Australia agreed, and there's a platinum award for that. Oh, thank you, man. That's very good. And that's on behalf of Festival Records. So thank you very much for coming out to the country. I Skipper. I'm looking forward to seeing your concerts. Hi, Beautiful. Yeah. One of the great Aussie war songs was a debut single, and here's Don Walker talking about Cold Chisel's Kaysan. Probably the first draft, and I only realised later that there are a couple of drafts. I uh, wrote the first draft in uh, an eating place called Sweetheart's Cafe, which was in King's Cross, where the McDonald's is now. And um, and I used to go there for you know for a cut sandwich, uh, which was a common meal for me at that stage. In my previous seven years or so, I had gone from well, let's say longer than that, ten or fifteen years. I had been I had gone from being you know. Uh, a kid on a very small farm where other kids on the other small farms round about, I'm talking 54 acres that's a small farm mm -hmm. that's a that's a difficult to break even farm for one family so a kid on a small farm where other, other kids that I played with were typically the kind of people who joined the army you know, went to Vietnam. Seemed like a natural thing to do. I'd gone from that kind of environment to uh, being on a university campus where all my city friends were um, were taking drugs and getting locked up for being in uh, anti-war marches who were all, you know, highly intelligent people and all very morally justified in their views, they'd never met anybody who would join the army. 
And for the mates that I still had who were from that other world, they didn't know anybody apart from watching TV that would have long hair. So then you get this disconnect between the world that you see on television and that you read about in the newspapers and the world that you see among the people that you know and that's around you. And for me, K-San was a song from the world that you see around you aimed at that other fake world. Australia's involvement in KSAN was zero and I was not aware of it at the time. To me it was an evocative name, a name with a lot of mythology. Some of my contemporaries who were, who were more involved in the anti-war movement uh, probably knew a lot more about the war than I did uh, and would have known that KSAN is a poor choice of place if you're going to feature an Australian hero. I wasn't uh, too concerned about accuracy because it, I, was, I was doing it really for my own amusement and there was, uh, there was very little chance that this could evolve into anything that would ever be recorded or that anybody would see or hear apart from me and my bandmates. We had never been uh, the calculating, calculating enough to think a band to, to take the approach of, ah, that works. Let's write two or three more like that. Right. We never ever did that. Um, which is, you know, the, the smart approach. I mean, that's the ACDC approach. Um, we never developed that kind of career intelligence. Did you later? No. <laughs> I can't remember much wrestling with the words. I think I was just having fun with the words and the story and and sort of feeling out where it was going. I look back at uh, at um, myself, you know, compared to some of the other stuff I was writing at the time as a pretty green kid sitting in King's Cross and probably age who knows, maybe 24, 25, something like that. Uh, riding a lot of schlock and just riding off, just riding for the sake of dreams. I think it's a pretty good piece of work. I'm, I'm quite proud of that. Uh, that's a different person who wrote it to me now, but uh, I'm quite proud of him. Mm. You should be. I think I should be, yes. Yes. Yeah. Aussies have probably heard K-San way too much, but if you step back with fresh ears, it's a fucking cracking song. Guarantees 
Last Waltz about the band's last gig in 1976 was also released in 1978. ACDC released one of their best records, Power Age, in 1978, and also the live album, If You Want Blood. Another live record that year was Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous. The Who released their album Who Are You on 18th of August 1978 and as mentioned earlier, Keith Moon died a few weeks after its release. Speaking of live albums and touring, the Rolling Stones hinted that their 1978 tour of America may be their last and that was 43 years ago. Tom Petty's second album was originally going to be titled Terminal Romance but they changed the name to You're Gonna Get It. The Police's debut album Outlandos de Moor came out in 1978 and the title roughly translates to Outlaws of Love, the first word being a combination of the words Outlaws and Commandos. And we've heard all three of the singles from that album 
all released in 1978 on the podcast before. Blondie's third album and their breakthrough album, Parallel Lines, was released in 1978 and made it to number one in the UK and number six in the US and had the monster hit, Heart of Glass. a bit of a production story on Heart of Glass in episode 10, so check that out. And another hugely influential album was released on February 10th, 1978, and it only made it to number 19 on the US charts, but it's gone on to sell 10 million copies in the US alone. And that record was the first Van Halen album. Tell us about this tape we're going to play in a few minutes. What happened about that? All right, well, we were playing one night and some of the fellas from Kiss came down to see the band who you brought along to see. And they came by and said, ooh, uh, <laughs> A couple days later, we were in New York City doing a little tape recording down Electric Ladyland Studios. So uh, what we have here is one hell of a demo tape. And this is something that we're showing people around and people are being, you know, Exposed to it, and um, this is the first radio play we've ever gotten. It's just a tape here, but uh, we're proud to be on the rocks of Los Angeles. What's it called? This is called Running with the Devil. version of Running With The Devil was the Gene Simmons produced demo. Paul McCartney and Wings released the London Town album. It was Wings' sixth album. It was recorded at Abbey Road and also on a luxury yacht called The Fair Carol. 
which was in the Virgin Islands. And it went to number four in the US, number three in Australia, number four in New Zealand, and number two in the UK. And as mentioned earlier, it had the number one US single, With A Little Luck. Paul McCartney's Wings released seven studio albums. Four of them went to number one in the US, and they released 29 singles, of which six went to number one in the US. So in 1978, this is what the other Beatles were up to. John Lennon was halfway through his five-year hiatus. Ringo released his seventh solo album called Bad Boy. And George didn't release any music in 1978 as his son Danny was born. And apart from Danny Harrison being born, here's some other births in 1978. Matt Bellamy and Chris Walsenholm from Muse. Will Champion and Guy Berryman from Coldplay, Karen O from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Sturgill Simpson, Chris Stapleton, and also Julian Casablancas from The Strokes. Presley was dead by 77, but Elvis Costello released his second album, This Year's Model, and it had this classic on it.
just as a side rabbit hole, here's some of the top movies from that year. Superman, Grease, Animal House, Every Which Way But Loose, Jaws 2, Up In Smoke, Revenge of the Pink Panther, The Deer Hunter, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, American Graffiti, and of course, Saturday Night Fever. And just some random happenings in 1978. Charlie Chaplin's remains were stolen from Switzerland. Larry Flint was shot. The first Unabomber attack took place. Son of Sam killer David Berkowitz was sentenced to 365 years in jail. The Garfield comic strip was released. The first Sydney Mardi Gras was held. Air India Flight 855 crashed off the coast of Bombay, killing 213 people. Ted Bundy committed his Chiamiga sorority house murders in Florida and was finally arrested after escaping custody twice. Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, was arrested. Film director Roman Polanski skipped bail and fled to France after pleading guilty to charges of sex with a 13-year-old. The Hillside Strangler claims his 10th and final victim. Hawthorne won the VFL Grand Final. Argentina defeated the Netherlands in the Soccer World Cup. More than 200 people died in in an explosion of a tanker truck at a campsite in Spain. The world's first test tube baby was born. Pope Paul VI dies. Pope John Paul I succeeds him. And 33 days later, he dies. The Jonestown Massacre happened in 1978. 918 people, including 270 children, died. Serial killer John Wayne Gacy was arrested and later convicted of 33 murders. Artificial insulin is invented. NASA recruited their first women astronauts, including Sally Ride. Volkswagen stopped producing the Beetle. Sweden banned the use of aerosol sprays. And the Space Invaders arcade game was released. 1978 seemed a weird mix of disco and serial killers. And finally, here's a few popular 1978 TV series to wash down your serial killers with. Now the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. What might be right for you may not be right for some.
welcome back. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back. Anyway, it sounds like 1978 was a pretty good year for cheesy music, rock and entertainment. And stick around to the end for a quick bunch of other great music from 1978 that I haven't mentioned today, just in case you need some more convincing. Thank you so much again for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast if you're enjoying it. You can say hi on Facebook and Instagram, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast. And check out the website for all the past episodes and playlists of all the songs used in each episode. And the website is arockandrollrabbithole.com. I may do some more rabbit holes on other years if anyone enjoyed 1978. As a random year, 1978 turned out to be a pretty good year for music. And just to finish up, as threatened, here's a medley of some more cracking songs from 1978. And I hope to talk at you next week. Thanks again, and I'll see ya. This is me.